Hi, I'm Riley. And I'm Taylor. Welcome to Happy Hour Film Club, the podcast where we talk about movies over cocktails. Our theme today is musicals. As usual, we do try to avoid major spoilers, but sometimes they do happen. Uh, We discuss the films, but we also try really hard to talk about them in a way that is both entertaining and leaves you still wanting to watch. So I think the first musical I saw live was Cats, which was really weird, but also beautiful. Um, I think it was the first sort of major theatrical production that I had seen where they had really lavish costumes and these really intense like dance numbers and things like that. I think at one point I had seen The Nutcracker, but I was very, very young, so I don't remember much of that. But Cats in particular, I went to, I think, maybe junior high with my mom, and I had no idea what to expect. I had never heard of Cats before. Um, And leaving, I was a little taken aback by the weirdness of watching human beings act like cats. It was strange. It's a weird one, yeah. (laughs) It is weird. And did you see the, the... Movie? No. Cats? Okay, see, I did not either. I didn't hear anything good about it, and and it had such a phenomenal cast. It had a great cast, and a great director is Tom Hooper, and he did uh, The King's Speech and Les Mis, the one with uh, Anne Hathaway and Hugh Jackman. Right. And he did, um, I don't know, he's done a bunch of great, like, award-winning films, and then Cats. And then Cats. And I read that they had buttholes, like the the cats in the movie had buttholes, and somebody had to go and digitally erase every butthole. Because they had already CGI'd in the buttholes beforehand? Yeah, I think so. Oh my gosh. I, I read that, and I was like, why? Like... Like, whose job was that? That just sounds like such an awful... Well, the cats also have boobs, which I thought was really off. Yeah, like, they're kind of shapely. Right. And just fur-covered and... it Like, fur bodysuits, essentially, yeah. is what it looked like. And honestly, I would have preferred bodysuits to CGI'd fur Yeah, bodies, they should have gone you know? practical, I think, with the costuming. Agreed. Uh, like, if it's good enough for the Broadway, it's good enough for the movie, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. I, I, the decision-making baffles me. Because, yeah, it had a great cast. It had, like, Idris Elba and, like, mm-hmm. Dame Judi Dench and, like, um, Rebel Taylor Wilson Swift. was in it. Yeah, Taylor Swift was in it. They and had a Ian. really stellar cast and so I don't think that the acting wasn't the problem it's not the script because Cats has been around for forever so like the storyline it's it's not new I think it's really just the CGI was so incredibly distracting yeah that people couldn't handle it I think it was a victim of the uncanny valley where like there's there's realism and then there's like cartoonish Mm -hmm. and then those are kind of the the peaks of the valley and down at the bottom is where it, it verges on too real and yet not it just not to the enough. human eye is just very off putting. Mm-hmm. Like um Polar Express. Yes. I've 
which again, I've not seen it, but you know, people have said that it's a little bit of the uncanny valley where it's just a little too real. I would like, agree with it that. Just, there's just something about it that's off-putting to like audiences. That animation in particular. So I, I don't love animated films personally because mm-hmm. I have a hard time with that uncanny valley. Like there, there are very few styles of animation that don't throw me off but especially with polar express or films like that where it's like anytime you have human beings that are digitized yeah it's really uncomfortable because you right there's that disillusionment like oh these worlds aren't quite meeting where they're supposed to be i think the other one was um which again i've not seen it but um jim carrey's um christmas carol they did like a quasi animated Christmas Carol, oh, where sounds... Jim Carrey was Scrooge, but it was in the Polar Express realm of like they did a motion capture performance, and it's like that works. It mo- mocap works obviously, but like you know that's what they did for Gollum and like right, you know, but in like video games nowadays. But then there's something about I don't know making. That animated character look like too much like Tom Hanks or Jim Carrey. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Well, and also Jim Carrey's terrifying, so I don't think I would want to see him animated <laughs> at all. I mean, personally, I find he is In just real life, a he's... scary man. <laughs> His face just really irks me. And it which is not rude. Like he's a you know, like a handsome fellow, but in every role of his, I just can't get past those exaggerated expressions, like his mouth and his crazy eyes just really give me nightmares sometimes. It's yeah. Like the mask. Ugh. Yeah, they're really, well, and they enhanced that, you know, with makeup and prosthetics and stuff, but it is, it's off-putting. But then when we talk about practical effects, I think now where we have kind of made it beyond that point where CGI was newer. Like, I think about uh, the Star Wars movies. I think it was, like, episode three. I remember being not awesome, and it felt like it was in that time when they were playing more with CGI, but it wasn't good CGI. It was just like, oh, here's this cool new opportunity. And so they left some of those practical effects behind but, and now I think our CGI is at a point where it's, you know, advanced enough that you can pull it off, like, with a golem. Or you have these creatures that you can incorporate into a film. But the more practical effects you use, the better it looks. Yeah. Like, it always looks better. Like, the the creature effects that people do, like the creature makeup and... Um, prosthetics and things like that always looks so much better to me than any kind of CGI, After Effects, anything. Yeah, I don't know why they digitally made people look like cats instead of, yeah, pra- practically just hiring really talented costumers, which exist in both mm-hmm. theater and film, and just going that route. I don't know. But... Or just hiring really talented cats. Or that. I mean, why not? Just make it, yeah, I don't know. I've not seen, I've actually never seen Cats on stage or the movie, but I've listened to the soundtrack mm. quite, quite a lot because my 
my grandma would listen to the soundtrack like in the car. <laughs> That's quite sweet. Yeah. But I've never, I've actually never seen the play. Okay. Have you seen any other mu- musicals like on, on stage? Yeah. So I uh, did go see Les Mis. Uh, when I was in London, which was really cool. And I've seen Wicked. I've seen uh, The Music Man. Um, and I've seen, you know, everything from civic theater to, you know, professional, you know, off-Broadway type stuff. But, uh, yeah. Did you have a favorite? Um, I always really enjoy watching The Music Man. I've seen The Music Man quite a lot, like, on stage. And I like the movie version of it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love the music, or the movie version. I've never seen it on stage, but I think mm-hmm. that would be a really cool one to see. Yeah. I saw Wicked also. Okay. Um, it came, so we grew up close to Louisville, Kentucky, so, which was great. So they had Kentucky Center for the Arts. And they had a lot of great stage performances that came through there. Like I said, they did Nutcracker every year. And when Wicked was touring, Wicked came there. And I saw that with my mom. And it was really, really good. She had read the book. And I never read the book. Um, But the stage performance was so fun. And I think that was the first musical where I thought, okay, I could probably listen to the soundtrack of this and enjoy that, just listening to that on its own. I had... A lot of friends I felt like growing up who were really, really into musicals. And I never could quite get on board. They would sit there and like listen to the entire soundtrack like mm-hmm. over and over and over and over. Oh, yeah. And they'd sit there and sing it together. And I was just like, man, ah, you guys are weird. I was like, that's not uh, that's not music. You know, it's it's yeah, no. Mus- storytelling. Musical theater is its own its own thing. And I I am definitely one of those people i will pop in a soundtrack to a musical and i will sing along to it in the car i love the chicago soundtrack i love uh book of mormon i I mean just any musical or not any music musical but there's a lot of musicals i i have the physical cd Mm -hmm. you know soundtrack to it and uh yeah i love it I think that's great. No shame in that. I think it's I mean, definitely, it's a per, it's a personal, like, you know, what you like, right? Like, yeah. And I grew up, like, on Disney music. Like, I had CDs upon CDs of Disney music compilations and then soundtracks for movies. And it got to the point where we would get the soundtrack before the movie came out because they would release the soundtrack before the movie came out. And I would already have the soundtrack memorized before I even went and saw it in theaters. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's just, yeah. And, you know, a lot of Disney movies are musicals. Um, Like, I don't know if you've seen the new one, Encanto, but it's, like, it's having a huge moment. Like, that we don't talk about Bruno is, it's, like, beat Let It Go. Mm. Which, Mm -hmm. you probably remember how big Let It Go was. Yeah. Um, So, Yeah. No, it, it was definitely, I was reading um, a, a short little blurb about Encanto the other day and about how kind of awesome it is um, that the hype around it has picked up so much because it had such a quiet release. It seemed like 
They didn't do a ton of marketing for it. Like, I had some, seen some things mm. about it coming out. Yeah. Um, but even, you know, thinking of Coco or Onward or some of the other more recent Dis- Disney films and animated films that have come out, I'd seen more about them before they had launched. And so knowing that this one has done as well as it has, it kind of, like, was a slow build. But yeah. I'm excited to watch it. I've heard really good things about it. Um, and that's cool, too, that you can appeal to. Because with Let It Go, you know, adults were singing it. Kids were singing it. It kind of bridges those generational gaps. Mm-hmm. Musicals in general do. I think musicals in general do, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, Encanto is so great. And, you know, Disney definitely leverages um, musical talents from Broadway, like mm-hmm. Lin-Manuel Miranda did the music for Encanto, uh, the Lopez's, um, it's like a husband and wife, they did the music for Let it, or for Frozen and Frozen 2, and, you know, they're a big, uh, what's his name, Robert Lopez, he did, like, Book of Mormon and Avenue Q, so, like, he's, oh, wow. yeah, he's, like, from, or he, you know, got his start in Broadway and, like, on stage, and then, you know, Disney has leveraged those talents for their movies because it carries over. And these are the people, I think, the people who are um, experts in musicals, these are the people that get EGOTs, which are, you know, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Oscar, Tony. Tony. Right? Yeah. Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. Yeah. Right. So, obviously, with Grammys, it's music, only I mean you only get you know Grammys or music awards and then Oscars obviously film Tony's is stage and then Emmy is television so that's kind of the outlier but it's like with these big musicals they work on stage they go to Hollywood you know they become films and the music is so you know it transcends in a way where it gets best you know original song or it gets you know whatever Mm-hmm. And yeah, because you have these different composers working, even though it may be the same song, it's you know composed by these different players. Because yeah, you look at Wicked or Cats or whatever it is, and you have all these different iterations of the same story, right? Um, or even the Nutcracker, it's like how many people have done this, right? right. So, and they have such a crazy lifespan, too. Mm-hmm. In a really unique way that, like, movies don't. You can have a stage play, a, a musical that goes on for 10 years, right? And I think traveling. Cats, I think Cats is one of the longest-running shows, like, Wouldn't ever. Wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Um, so transitioning to our movies, yes. uh, what did you pick, Taylor? So I chose The Producers. Awesome. And the musical. The musical. <laughs> yeah. And we'll... <laughs> so there's a non-musical uh, version, the 1967 version, yeah. version um, which I did watch. Yeah. Uh, I did watch that. Um, it wasn't the right version. Right. Uh, for what we're talking about today. But you know what? I... Really enjoyed both. I I appreciated both watching both movies. I hadn't seen the original or or the re 
the musical version that was done in 2005 that you picked, but being able to like see the differences and similarities back to back was cool. I haven't really done that before. I realized I haven't watched like an original of something and a remake that close together in time before. So that was kind of fun and unexpected. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because so it was originally a night the you know, Mel Brooks's film in 1967. And then, you know, decades later, he chooses to do a musical. So uh, it's a a movie that then spawned its own musical, and it was on Broadway. And then that musical became a movie. So it's a... It's a round trip type scenario. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's it's passed through lots of iterations of itself. Yes. Um, correct. But uh what what movie did you choose? I chose Mamma Mia. So also a early-ish, mid-ish 2000s mm, yeah. film. Um one that I hadn't watched in a while, but it's one of my favorites. It's actually one of my sister's favorites, too. We were talking about that. Mm-hmm. She just had an audition for a play the other day. It was a musical, and she used uh, an ABBA song from Mamma Mia because oh, it, it counted. It was fun. Yeah, That's awesome. That was cool. um, but before we jump into our movies, I think we should probably get some drinks. Thank you, Nick, for uh, making us drinks as usual. So uh, tell tell us what you prepared for us. You're very welcome. Uh, so, what is one of what is what is considered the best musical of our of our modern era or our time currently? Hamilton. 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 Correct. <laughs> Nice! I, <laughs> Go me! I, I really thought I was going to get that one. I didn't want to answer because I already knew. <laughs> uh, it's like you live together or something. Yeah. That's true. It's unfair advantage. You're not allowed to be here anymore. <laughs> I can't live here. You can't, sorry, you're going to have to move out. Every time we prepare for an episode, you go away for like three days. and then it's got to do it for the pod. Time. Do it for the pod. You have to sacrifice... Okay, so Hamilton. So Hamilton. So so what's a very famous song from Hamilton that Lin-Manuel Miranda loves to sing? Let it go. No, that's wrong. (laughs) You're not far off. We don't talk about Bruno? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're going to have to help us out on this one. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. He talks about, I'm not throwing away my shot. Um, and today we're doing shots. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I apologize. Yay! Yay! <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, so today we are doing the. Uh, there's a cocktail out there in the world called a Ward Eight cocktail. Uh, it is has a very unique history. Um, comes from Boston. Uh, and that was also kind of like, oh, what a happy coincidence, because I was, like, trying to find some, like, Hamilton-inspired cocktails and mm. has some Boston influence with oh, cool. it. Okay. I mean, obviously not around when, like, you know, 
the war for independence happened. But mm. uh, this cocktail is a kind of a continuation of like what we did in the last episode where we have a lot of orange juice and uh, grenadine and lemon juice. And uh, for the spirit, we did uh, bourbon for this one. Normally you do rye for this drink, but, uh, but I thought it'd be fun to do like kind of a tiny little shot version of it. Uh, we garnished it with a, with a maraschino cherry in there. So at the bottom of the shot is a maraschino cherry. Um, so yeah. Which I love. I'm such a cherry fiend. It's like when you go and you get milkshakes, I always ask for extra cherries. Mm, So good. Yum. So, yeah, so the cocktail, it's it's two ounces of bourbon. Um, I modified the recipe just a little bit. I did about an ounce of lemon juice, um, an ounce or three quarters ounce of orange juice, and just like a little splash of like grenadine just to give it a little sweetness because it is kind of a tartar drink. Mm. Weirdly enough, with all of that like sugar, and like juice, fruit juice in it. It's a very bitter drink. Hmm. So, um, so yeah. And then you can uh, garnish it with uh, some orange peel and a maraschino cherry. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm gonna try the the drink itself first. Yeah, try try the drink drink itself first. And then for Taylor, uh, because we're still doing Dry January, uh, we are two days away from completing Dry January. Uh, we did. Basically, kind of a take on a Shirley Temple. Um, it was um, we were gonna do. So normally, it's uh, um, you do ginger ale, you do some grenadine, and you do some lime juice, and then uh, you you fill basically the glass up with your ginger ale. But uh, that even that was really really sweet, and so we switched it up and we went with Aha. And how how is which it? Which is which is like sparkling water, basically yeah. like Lacroix, bubbly. You know the. There's, I think there's like a weird one. I say weird, like a water Waterloo. Um, oh okay, yeah. Brand. Oh, so yeah, there's just seltzer so, water. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. seltzer water. Mm-hmm. And so be- yeah, no, I I really like it. Um, because yeah, when it was with the ginger ale, it was super. Um, sugary. Yeah. And so with the seltzer water and lime and a little bit of grenadine and you even gave me a cherry. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really good. Nice. So thank you for making me a mocktail. Yes. Yeah, and I guess at the time that this is launching it will be officially the end of your dry January. Yes. So you can partake in the next next episode. This is really good. Um, you're right. It's it's not super bitter. It's just quite sour. Yeah. Um, it's really, really sour, which is nice and refreshing. It's not overwhelming, but it is kind of got that, like, lemonade uh, level of sour, I it, would say. Yeah, I agree with you. It's definitely, yeah, kind of that tart. And, um, yeah, I tried to, like, balance it out a little bit. But even then, I still like the tart. I do, too. Nice. You know, sometimes, I think we were talking about this earlier, but you can get... Cocktails and mixed drinks that are just so sweet. They just tend to be really sugary. And so it's nice to have something to balance it out every once in a while. Like, I think when I go out, I tend to lean towards an old-fashioned or something like that just because it's still got a little bit of that sweetness to it, but 
it's also very liquor forward. So it's got that bitterness and cuts the sweetness pretty well because as much as I love like a boozy milkshake or something <laughs> like that, you know, it's still like after a couple of them, you need something that cuts the sweetness a little bit. Yeah. This is really good. So with the shot, <laughs> so it's is, the same. It's the same thing. It's uh, it's the same drink. It's just in a little shot glass. Okay. Cause, okay. Because it just carried over my my pun into just too well. Just too well. It's cute. I mean, I legit for like half a second was just like, I'll just pour us all shots. <laughs> And uh, we'll just do shots for this, but then that that really didn't feel like it was in in the spirit of of uh, of the show. So I kind of went uh, influenced definitely by you know we've kind of touched around it, but uh, our local bar here uh, they they do kind of shots. Uh, they do like a snackery, which is kind of like a shot daiquiri mm-hmm. kind of take. And so they kind of take cocktails and kind of condense them down into single shots. Mm, right. Is, so that was kind of the inspiration for it. And Yeah. Yeah. They, they do one over Christmas where they put uh, a maraschino cherry in at the bottom, and that's really good. Ooh, yum. Yeah. yeah, it looks like a pineapple upside down shot, um, mm. which is also delicious. But I, I don't know if they do that there, but that's one I've had. At some other places too. That's yeah, true. So are you? So I'm gonna take my shot. Ooh, uh, wait, we should do a little clink. Sorry, do like a Alexander Hamilton. Take yeah. your shot. Taking our shot. Not throwing away my shot. Yum. Ooh. Mm. My cherry's stuck. Oh. <laughs> Get out of there. How was it? It was good. It was bitter, and then that cherry hit, and then all that sweetness just, like, came with that cherry. Nice. Mm-hmm. So it was very good. It was a lot. No. <laughs> Delicious. Mm, so good. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Nick. This is an extra fun little treat, having a shot and a cocktail today. Yeah, I figured I figured we'd do shots, but then, you know, if you want to sip on something throughout the episode. Yeah. Wait, so we're not doing shots for I mean, the rest of the I mean, we can do shots for the rest of the episode. Each <laughs> each new film y'all talk about, we could just yeah. I could just run in real quick with mm. a shot. It's like four o'clock on a Sunday. I think we'll take it slow. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's Sunday, it's the weekend. Taylor's so. the only sober one left, guys. Sorry. Um someone's gotta be the adult. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I slammed my drink. Well, thank you. Happy to help, y'all. Yeah, thanks again. We will enjoy sipping our cocktails and mocktails for the rest of the episode. Yeah, cheers, everybody. Cheers. Okay, Taylor, you are first up this week, so go ahead and tell us about your movie. All right, so... The Producers is a 2005 musical comedy directed by Susan Stroman and written by Mel Brooks and Thomas Meehan. It's based on the 2001 Broadway musical, which was based on Brooks's 1967 film of the same name starring Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder. So, as we mentioned before, it's basically a movie based on a play based on a movie. 
if that makes sense. <laughs> I follow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the film stars an ensemble cast led by Nathan Lane, Matthew Broderick, Uma Thurman, and Will Ferrell. The Producers is set in 1959, New York City. Uh, Max Bialystok is a washed-up Broadway producer who recently produced a giant flop. So his career is kind of bought, you know, he's hit rock bottom. Mm -hmm. Uh, Leo Bloom is an, an accountant who manages Max's books. And while studying Max's books, Leo hypothesizes that one could make more money with a flop than with a hit by raising more money than what's needed to fund the show. And since a flop is expected to lose money, the IRS wouldn't investigate the finances of a failed production. So Leo's theory piques Max's interest, and he starts to scheme and attempts to recruit Leo as his partner slash co-producer. And after much song and dance, Leo eventually agrees. So they set out to find the absolute worst play to produce, a certifiable flop. And after reading through many, many awful scripts, they find the one. Springtime for Hitler, a gay romp with Adolf and Ava at Berchtesgarten. <laughs> uh, so, so Max and Leo immediately go to meet with the writer uh, named Franz Liebkind, a crazy ex-Nazi. So, again, this is set in 1959, which isn't necessarily... Like, you don't necessarily know that watching the movie. Um, yeah. But it is close enough to World War II that, you know, this person would have been, I guess, an ex-Nazi who's living in New York right now. Right. And, you can tell by the dress, I think. That's how I could tell was the way that they were dressed. Like yeah. Like, garb kind of lends itself to the time period. Right. Um, and so uh, Fran, Franz Liebkind, the crazy ex-Nazi, is played by Will Ferrell. And uh, Max and Leo meet with him to get the rights to his musical. Um, and after, again, much song and dance, they do uh, Der Guten Tag Hopklop. Uh, <laughs> Franz signs the, signs the contract and gives them the rights to produce his play. And next, they need to find the worst director. So they visit the residence of Roger Dubree, a very flamboyant director in New York City. And Roger is reluctant to sign on as director. But again, after much song and dance, uh, he agrees and signs the paperwork. So they have the worst play ever written and the worst director in town. So now they have to cast the production. And this is where we meet Ula, played by Uma Thurman. And they hire her to be their receptionist, but to also star in the play. Uh, they also have a casting call for Hitler. Uh, no experience required, which I thought was a very funny joke. <laughs> <laughs> After several terrible auditions, Franz Liebkind is unhappy with all of the actors aud auditioning and jumps on stage to show them how it's done. Everyone exclaims, that's our Hitler, and Franz is now cast in the leading role. And Franz is Will Ferrell's. And Franz is Will, is Will Ferrell, yeah. Mm -hmm. Will Ferrell in this is, as you would expect, just over-the-top, nutty, just 
crazy. Yeah, kind of lost his mind, which is the character in and of itself. Like, yeah, in, in the original, too. It's just kind of a bonkers. Yeah, when they meet him, he's, like, on a rooftop talking to his pigeons, and there's, like, a whole thing. <laughs> his pigeon Adolf is probably... <laughs> I, I cry laughed. Yeah. I cry laughed at Adolf the pigeon Adolf Hitler. Adolf the pigeon, yeah. And funny enough, so when I was reading about this movie, like the making of, it's like, you know, special creature effects were done by the Jim Henson Company. I'm like, what special creature effects? And I'm like, oh, my God, they're talking about the the pigeons. pigeons. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the people who did Yoda and Kermit the Frog and, you know, all these great or Jabba the Hutt. It's like, yeah, they did the pigeons for the producers. (laughs) There were a lot of pigeons, and they all had unique characteristics. So they did, and they were they were puppets. So mm-hmm. so yeah, they were awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so fast forward to opening night. Max and Leo are set to open and close their show in a single night, making it the absolute flop that they need to make to take their money and go to Rio to live out their dreams because that's that's their plan ultimately. And after debating between the merits of saying good luck and break a leg on opening night, Franz actually falls down the stairs and breaks his leg. And instead of canceling the show, Roger, the director, steps into the role of Hitler. When the show starts, people are, of course, super offended and, you know, some even start to get up and walk out of the theater. But then... Roger's portrayal of Hitler becomes so over the top, it takes the play from offensive to satirical. And people start to laugh because now they're making fun of Hitler instead of idolizing him as Franz had originally written it. And the play becomes a hit. This, of course, is a huge problem for Max and Leo as they have to decide what to do. Either turn themselves into the IRS or run. They also have a very angry Franz Liebkind to deal with because they made a fool out of Hitler. And the joke is that he didn't need our help. Well, and they had to do the hop-clop dance. That's true. They signed the Sigmund Oath or something. Yeah, they they had their oath that they did, and then yeah. they had to perform the hop-clop with Franz, which was their like signature of like they would do Hitler justice and that he was... They had the same affinity towards Hitler as yes. Franz did. Yes. So he was quite angry. <laughs> yes, very angry. Um, so this musical is one of my favorites. All of the music is written by Mel Brooks, who I love. He is such a great writer, and some of the lyrics are just so hilarious. They make me laugh every single time. The costuming in this movie is fantastic. I love all of Uma Thurman's dresses and stage costumes. And the set design is a lot of fun as well. It's just a big homage to big, flashy Broadway musicals, but it's also very, very satirical, as is expected from Mel Brooks. So, Riley, what did you think of the 2005 musical, The Producers? It was awesome. I have never even heard of this before, which makes me wonder why. It's got such a great cast, and, like, 
never, ever, ever have I heard of the producers before. So, and I feel like I'm fairly aware of film, even if it's something I haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. But the, And especially with musicals, because there's not like a plethora of musicals out there in the world either, especially ones on film that have done very well for themselves. Yeah, well, um, so interesting. So the Broadway musical was a huge hit. It won a bunch of Tonys, and it had a very long running all over the world. Like, you know, there's a London one, a New York one. And so the the Broadway musical is very, very successful. The movie, based on the musical, uh, was a commercial flop. Really? Yeah. That is... Interesting. Was there anything saying why? I'm not sure. It could have, could have been, you know, just the timing of when it came out. But Nathan Lane and Matthew Roderick were those roles on Broadway. So they they carried over most of the original cast. The only ones that weren't on the, in the stage play were Uma Thurman and Will Ferrell. And if anything, I... I really liked them in their roles. It's not like they brought it down, you know. Will <laughs> Ferrell and Uma Thurman. Yeah, so yeah. Will Ferrell and Uma Thurman weren't in the stage production, but almost everyone else in, like, the main roles mm-hmm. were, like, the guy who played Roger Dupree and you know, I Carmen wondered. Dia. Like, all those people were, like, were taken from stage to mm. uh, the film adaptation. Yeah. So I don't know why the movie was uh, was less successful than the Broadway Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe just the marketing of it or but timing. That could be, or, yeah, but that could be why you've not ever number. heard of it. Well, and especially, like, Nathan Lane, I, I don't think I've ever seen a film that I didn't enjoy watching him in. You know, know? He's fantastic. He's such a good character. Like, he just, and his voice is just so iconic, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, it's just, you know it's him. Yeah. As soon as you hear it, you know it's him. And his facial expressions and his, like, the, his body language. He's just great, I think, as a stage actor and an actor for film and TV, mm-hmm. which I feel like oftentimes doesn't carry over super well. It's like Patrick Stewart is much the same, in my opinion. Like, he's really great on stage, and he's also wonder- wonderful on film and TV. Um, but then you can have others. So, personally, Matthew Broderick... I actually didn't love him in this. I'm he's really, lie. like, weird and neurotic in it. <laughs> he's weird and neurotic, but in a way that felt a little flat. Hmm. And, I, and I'm not sure if it's because he was juxtaposed by Nathan Lane, who is such a big, bold character, but especially after having accidentally watched the 67 version of The Producers, where Gene Wilder played mm-hmm. the same character as him, as Matthew Broderick, I felt like I really liked Gene Wilder's take on it, and I didn't love Matthew's. And I think if I had seen it on stage, and now that you say that he was part of that cast, the the touring cast for it, mm-hmm. I could totally see that playing differently on stage. Oh, definitely. I think it would have gone really well. I think what yeah. I didn't love was it was like his facial expressions just weren't quite hitting the mark for me. Yeah. And I love, but his body was great. It was like I loved watching his body language, but it was like his face and his body were two separate things. Yeah, he does some really weird like facial <sighs> expressions in this. Well, and he I has- watched the outtakes and just some of the like 
facial expressions he does, like, makes Nathan Lane, like, break every time. Like, Nathan Lane will we'll just lose it. Really? <laughs> it was, yeah, it was very entertaining to watch. And I think Matthew Broderick, to me, seems like a high-energy, or has always been a high-energy actor, too, just in his other roles. And so seeing him in this, where it's not necessarily low-energy, he's just on a different level than Nathan Lane, especially. He's got some weird tics and, yeah, neuroses that he's like, is that a word? Neuroses? Neuroses? Yeah. It sounds wrong. <laughs> neuroses. I don't know. Neuroses? Yeah. He's got some issues, for yeah, sure. Yeah, no, he does. Like, his character has, like, a blanket that, like, he needs for comfort. Mm-hmm. and um, But I, I really do, like, uh, think... My favorite part with Leo, for with that character, is when he sings the song, I want to be a, a producer. Yeah, me too. I thought he shone in that moment so, yeah. so well. Yeah, because he's, like, in an accounting office, and it's very, you know, soul-sucking work with all these, like, people who are really sad and depressed because they're mm-hmm. accountants. And then he, he has this uh, dream to be a producer, and the song and dance number you know, he's taken to a different world and, you know, he's dancing with the lights of Broadway and, like, it's just, it's so good. Which never happens in the original. And I think something, so, again, when I was watching (laughs) the wrong film, um, I thought the transition of Leo's character from being this, like, really um, by-the-books, well-to-do human being, this accountant that has maybe kind of a dull life and some weird neurotic things going on with him to kind of being involved in this crickery, you know, this crime, life of crime. It's definitely got more of a slimy feeling than the 2005 musical Mm -hmm. because there's no moment where Leo in the original seems like he's doing this for himself. It's pretty much like he is convinced and pigeonholed into doing this. Yeah, he's doing it, like, against his will, kind of. Yeah, yeah. And so I really appreciated that in the musical adaptation, he gets his own moment to be like, you know what, I am unhappy, and I want to do this thing. And, like, yeah, it's kind of illegal, and I don't care. Like, I am always dealing with other people's money. Like, when is it my turn to be a somebody? And when is it my turn to make the money and and come out on top? So, and (laughs) um, he doesn't get the woman either, necessarily. Like, he he and the secretary don't have a thing in in the the original. original. Right? But then he and Uma Thurman Leo and Uma Thurman in the 2005 version have their little romance, Mm -hmm. which I love because there are dance numbers together. Uma Thurman is a very tall woman, and Matthew Broderick is not a very tall man. And so seeing them dance together is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, the choreography is really great, and yeah, like her dresses and the dance number so she paints their office white because they asked her to tidy up and so everything is spotless and white and you know in in true stage production or you know if you think about the set design on stage I'm sure you know it carried over to the film version because yeah everything's white and she's wearing this like 
teal turquoise gown Mm -hmm. that at some point in the dance number, it shifts from a knee-length dress to an evening gown that goes to the floor, and it's just it's so sparkly. It's very it's sparkly. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, they had a lot of really seamless transitions, mm-hmm. which I loved. There's a there's a number with Mr. Oh, my gosh. Um, Nathan Lane's character. Oh, Bialystok. Bialystok. Okay, so he essentially has been conning these old women into giving the theater money via doing, like, basically providing sexual favors to these elderly women. Yeah. Which I love. (laughs) I cannot tell you how much I love this. Um, And he's got photos of each of these different women in his little... Uh, treasure trove so he'll he'll pull out the photo of the woman that's coming over to his apartment or office and put it on the mantle so that when she gets there you know it's her that's in the space yeah his lover or whatever and when they're in the musical when they're getting money together to put on this major flop there's a whole number with all of these older women um with their walkers and (laughs) It's just awesome. Like I and and you could totally see it taking place on stage. I thought they did a really good job of making the musical feel like a stage production, mm-hmm. even though it was all done for film. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and their transitions with the cameras too is like they would use a large set, and so there wasn't a lot of cutting that would happen. There was like fairly long one shots so you'd like move in closer to some people who are dancing and then you move out and you feel like you're in a totally different scene and it was just really beautiful to watch it was a lot of fun yeah um yeah i i thoroughly enjoyed it i had no idea what to expect either um again because i had never heard of it before so I when I thought of the producers i honestly was thinking like oh tv producers so it's gonna be about like the news. Oh. <laughs> Which, again, I didn't read anything about it, clearly. Um, but it was a lot of fun. I'm trying to think. There was also... I was going to ask, what did you think about the musical within the musical? Uh, springtime for Hitler. <laughs> I was going to say, I the costuming for Springtime for Hitler is insane. So, you know how you have these... Um, Oh, what are what are the women called that are like they're part of the dancing group? In oh, it. the stormtroopers or the stage? Yeah, call like, girls. <laughs> sure. <know>. Yeah. <laughs> it, well, yeah. I guess call girls. Like they're yeah. the women who are basically they don't really have a character. They're just dancing. They're just the dancers. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, when they are sort of talking about. Germany mm. and the master race and these women walk down a platform oh, those, and yeah. they have these weird like side tables fastened <laughs> to their hips, their hips. <laughs> and they've got like pretzel and like beer adornments and boor- beer steins yeah. and in the original I actually had notes about how all of the they didn't have like hip table things <laughs> they had just like boob tassels like nipple tassels oh, yeah. and boob covers yeah that were like just pretzels right. or just beer steins <laughs> and i was like oh my gosh <laughs> and then they have <laughs> and this is i i like audibly 
was like, no effing way. I was watching this alone, mind you. So I'm sitting there on my couch, awestruck by how incredibly offensive this is. And there's a part where the dancers form the swastika. Yeah. And you're, like, looking down so the camera is above the group of people that's, like, in the formation of the swastika. And they're, like, moving in a circle, sort of, so they're this spinning swastika. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. (laughs) There's no freaking way. Yeah. And the way that they... In the musical, it was like they had a mirror, a mirror. or something yeah. over, like kind of angled so that the audience could also see. They could see the formation that they're in. And that, I guess, is to homage of uh, the musical, I think it's called Call Line. Hmm. So I think where, you know, you have these big stage productions with this choreographed number where people are standing in a very specific, almost like a marching band, like, mm-hmm. way. And so, on stage, you have a big mirror. So that was, like, an homage to, like, an older musical that used that same effect. But, obviously, in Springtime for Hitler, it's to show off that they're in the form of a swastika. It is so <laughs> messed up. Well, and their, um, their lead performer in the first song, Before We Ever Meet Hitler, Oh yeah, um, he has, like, blonde hair and blue eyes, which he does not in real life. This actor has really dark hair. Yeah. And is, like, European. And I I just found it really interesting, some of the choices that they made. But then, what, what turn was it? Because in the original, the guy that they get to play Hitler, nothing happens to him. He ends up being this, like cool guy like this he's almost got this like 60s vibe of like being in a band like flower child sort of thing and so the the hitler guy is like yeah baby you know and so everybody's like oh this is silly hitler's silly you know but then in the musical franz breaks his leg and so the director has to take this on and the director is very flamboyant Super flamboyant. Mm -hmm. So then you end up with this very flamboyant Hitler. Right. And so then that's the joke, which I loved. It just worked. It played so well. And I felt like I liked what they did in the musical better than the original in way of, like, trying to really change it to be, like, a satire versus an ode to. I just felt like they, like, delivered on that really really well (laughs) yeah yeah because I love the whole the hile myself (laughs) and there's a line in there that he's like I'm the German Ethel Ethel Merman (laughs) some of the lyrics in this are just so funny because another one is like goose steps the new step (laughs) it is ridiculous it's ridiculous it is a lot of fun um And the way it ended, too, was interesting. Just, again, watching the two different films, the ending was kind of the same and also kind of not. Like, Mm -hmm. there were were definitely some differences there. Um, And I loved backtracking to the white room. So when Uma Thurman, like, paints the room and because she's tidying up, well, in the original... It's like they make money, and then all of a sudden their office looks totally different. Like, it's all white. 
and there's no explanation for it. Like, no one does it. It's still the same room, supposedly, but it looks completely different, and there's no explanation at all. And so I thought it was really funny when she's standing there, like, painting it white, because it's like, oh, okay, there we go, because it was just a weird, like, all of a sudden, they're in this white room, and we don't know how we got here or why everything's white. Yeah, I feel like in, and it's been a very long time since I've seen the original 1967 movie, which is not a musical at all. It's Mm-mm. just a movie. But um, but this musical, I think it does a good job of, like, like, obviously everything that happens is super absurd and unbelievable, but they make it so that you do, you don't question it Mm-mm. because, you know, Ula walks in, and she's like, oh, I want to audition. And then they're like, well, we're not casting right now. But then, of course, Nathan Lane's like, of course we're casting. We're always casting. Like, we, of course we are going to hire her because look at her. Mm-hmm. And so then it's like, well, what can she do? It's like, oh, she'll be our receptionist. And, and like, you can tidy up the office for us. And she's like, oh, tidy up? What does that mean? Because she's supposed to be this, like, Swedish, like, you know, that's her, English is her second language, I guess. And she's like, tidy oop, tidy oop. Like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And they're like, make look nice. And <laughs> and she's like, oh, I can do that. <laughs> and then the next time you see their office, it's all painted white. And then they have a safe where they're keeping their money. And she paints the entire safe inside and out white. And so they can't. Like, it's hard for them to open it because they don't they see, can't the, see the numbers. They can't see the numbers to the safe. So funny. And so they, like, take it to that extreme of, like, oh, this is a joke. And then the payoff is, like, oh, look, it's all white. And then and then they take it even further. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was great. I I really enjoyed it. That was such a good pick. I'm, I'm glad you went with that film because I feel like there are probably a lot of other people who haven't seen this either. And it it's truly a delight. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. What did you think of the uh, the song that they do at the director's house? The Keep It Gay. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay, again, it was like they were kind of poking at it in the original. Like, clearly the director's gay. And, like, his secretary, I guess, that's there. Or, like, his choreographer-ish, too is his lover. Like, that's very obvious. But they don't ever say it in the original film. It's They kind of dance around it. And I think in this and the musical, they're like, F it. We are going to make this very obvious. Like, this is a relationship. This guy is really flamboyant because the first time we meet the director, he's in drag. He's in a dress. Um, Yeah. And... And the two men, Leo and Max. Max, they're like, "Oh, he's in a dress. What do we do?" Yeah, it's like, "Don't, don't notice it. Yeah, you don't notice anything. Yeah. Don't, you don't notice anything." Yeah. So they just sort of pretend like everything's normal. But then the director's like, "Do you like my dress? I'm going to a costume party. You yeah. know, uh, I win every year." Yeah, and then his lover is like. It's not the same without the wig. Like, you you might as well be wearing nothing if you don't have the wig on. So he yeah. goes and he puts the wig on. And <laughs> it's just a really fun back and forth. And I thought, yeah, exactly. Like, they took something that was subtly offensive and just really 
really leaned into it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was great. Yeah. I This movie just, it makes me laugh every time. Mm-hmm. So I do have a couple fun facts. Um, the first one is kind of interesting, especially since you went ahead and watched the 1967 film. Uh, so the phrase, it was shocking, outrageous, insulting, and I loved every minute of it. Uh, from a supposed review of Springtime for Hitler was actually a a rewording of a review by Peter Sellers written about the producers in 1967. So, you know, when when they find out it's a hit and they're panicking and they're reading the reviews the next day because people ended up loving it. Yeah, one of the reviews is, it was shocking, outrageous, insulting, and I loved every minute of it. That's like an actual, or it's rewording of an actual review that someone wrote. For the 1967 About the film. actual film. Yeah. That's wonderful. I thought that was... It was very appropriate. Yeah. Um, another fun fact is that um, the original Broadway production opened at the St. James Theater on April 9th, 2001... And ran for 2,502 performances, winning a record-breaking 12 Tonys, including the 2001 Tony Awards for the Best Musical, Book, and Score. Um, also, Gary Beach, he did the role of the director, Roger Dupree, was playing the same character on both stage and screen at the same time. Oh, my gosh. And when the movie premiered, he was also starring as Roger Debris on the Broadway. So I thought that was, like, pretty cool. He was, like, doing double duty. My goodness. Yeah. That's intense. Yeah. Whew. So that was the producers. Very so. cool. Yeah. No, I – and that – the character Roger Debris, the director, was a lot of fun, too. I really – and I was curious about that role because I hadn't – I didn't recognize that actor, and I felt with such big names, they would have gotten somebody maybe more recognizable. And now that you mentioned that he was playing on Broadway, and most of these Mm -hmm. actors were on Broadway as well, it's like, oh, that's why. That makes sense. Yeah. And the the actor who played Carmen Ghia, who was his lover slash... Choreographer Chore- slash doorman, assistant, I guess. Yeah. doorman, yeah, <laughs> yeah, all the things. Uh, so that actor did the singing voice in Hercules, in Disney's Hercules. Whoa! Yeah, yeah. and then uh, of course Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick were both in The Lion King because Nathan Lane did the voice of Timon, and Matthew Broderick was this was uh, adult Simba. Oh, I didn't realize he was adult Simba. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if he did the singing Simba because sometimes with Disney movies they'll have a different person sing mm-hmm. than actually do the speaking lines. Mm-hmm. So I'm not there. I, I no. I think Matthew Roderick did do the singing for the adult Simba, and of course Jonathan Taylor Thomas was the baby little Simba, mm-hmm. adolescent Simba, <laughs> baby Simba. All right, so Riley, tell us about Mamma Mia. If you insist. Um, okay, so as you might have guessed, uh, if you've not seen it, Mamma Mia, the musical, crafts its story around the songs of popular 70s music icon ABBA. 
to be honest, I, like I mentioned earlier, was not a huge fan of musicals necessarily growing up. It wasn't part of my repertoire of soundtrack listening. It was more of a classic rock uh, child, I suppose. Um, but I am a huge fan of ABBA. And Mamma Mia does an awesome job of incorporating ABBA songs into the movie's storyline. Um, I remember specifically, my mom has this book of CDs that has like pages and pages. It's like a big flip book. And ABBA was one that I would always put in the CD player when I would do dishes at home. So I'd like listen to it as I was doing my chores in the kitchen. Um, so it was just like kind of a nice nostalgic flashback for me. Um, but we start the movie off with Sophie, a young bride-to-be who sends three past lovers of her mother's invitations to her wedding. Sophie's mother never, never told her who her father was, so after finding her mother's diary from around the same time that Sophie was conceived, she discovers three names and three potential fathers. All three men arrived for the wedding, held in Greece, where Sophie and her mother, Donna, live. Donna discovers the men and is taken by surprise, as she has as much of an idea as Sophie does as to which man is Sophie's father. So we've got kind of this comedy of errors going on here. We get these three guys who Sophie clearly does not anticipate one, let alone all of them, showing up for her wedding. Which is an interesting choice. Sophie decides not to tell anybody that she's invited these men. Not her best friends, not her husband-to-be, not her mother. So not only does Sophie have no idea who these guys are, because in my mind, I'm like, they could be serial killers. Like, that was my first thought. Uh. Um, but <laughs> yeah, she's... a completely different movie at that point. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's another musical. I invited a murderer to my wedding. <laughs> You know what? I've heard worse plot lines. There you go. I have. Um, <laughs> so I want to avoid spoilers because it's a pretty simple, it is a simple plot. Like, mm-hmm. you have these three guys. Sophie's looking for her dad. Donna, her mother, has no idea that she's invited these people. And Sophie was born out of wedlock. So they're all sort of like, uh, who knows? We had these flings all around the same time. Like, could be any of them. Um, so we have one daughter, three fathers, and a wedding. The cast is true eye candy. We've got Meryl Streep playing Donna. This is like also one of my favorite Meryl Streep roles. She just has so much fun with it. Like she's such a vibrant person and a badass. So she plays this strong independent mom who runs an inn in Greece of all places. And they're all English speaking. So you have to assume that like none of them are, I don't think she's like native to that area necessarily um but yeah she's just she's just a hoot uh amanda seafried as sophie her daughter donna's three best friends and old bandmates julie walters and christine baranski julie walters by the way is just a freaking showstopper she does such a good job in this dame julie walters dame sorry excuse me dame I actually didn't recognize her. I I didn't see until later that it was her. Really? Yeah. I was like, oh my god, that's 
I guess, yeah. Mrs. Weasley, like. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. She does, she's got her hair different. She doesn't have it's red like hair. It's like a pixie cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she kind of wears, like, sunglasses a lot in this for some reason. <laughs> she's got this weird, like, lone wolf thing going for herself. It gave um, me, like, Zad Galifianakis vibes from, like, The Hangover. <laughs> yes! That is her character, though. She's kind of, like, the party animal. Like, she's independent. She doesn't want a man. She's written this book. She's edgy. She's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and uh, Christine Baranski, who's just, like, this tall, thin, gorgeous woman who they also kind of poke fun at getting lots of plastic surgery and yeah she has these younger men fawning over her and mm-hmm. she uses this like 4k like four karat gold oh, face moisturizer, moisturizer <laughs> with like i don't know what they say it's like donkey ass or something like that in it <laughs> um it's it's a lot of fun uh and then we have colin firth pierce brosnan and stellan skarsgård playing harry sam and bill are three potential fathers who are all very different, but they all have accents, which I was picking up throughout this. It's kind of an interesting melding of, like, nationalities. I feel like you're not really sure where anyone is from. Like, everybody meets on this little island in Greece, but you're, like, not sure how they got there. Or clearly, like, Colin Firth kind of talks about he was... um, he was like a like a metalhead essentially. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, he was like this hardcore. They, yeah, they made him look like a punk in yeah. his like uh, flashbacks. Oh yeah, he was very rock and roll. Like a studded necklace and like spiky hair, dark eyeliner. Which <laughs> is I've never been so attracted to a man a weird in my life. Thing, a weird look for Colin. Oh, Ford. I loved it. Um, but yeah, when Sophie sends the letters at the very beginning of the movie, it shows where like what locations they're all in the address so it's mm-hmm. like usa uk and sweden right well and they all have um there's a point where they show their passports too oh, and they're all right. from different places yeah um but it doesn't really tell us how they met like with donna originally it yeah. was sort of like all these people just found their way to this very small remote island in greece yeah um but that also provides a really beautiful setting. Um, it's a lot of fun seeing each of these actors get their moments to perform. Like, each of them, it's an ensemble cast, but they all have these really wonderful moments of solos and vibrant, I don't know, it, it, those the music and the songs and the like everything about ABBA is bright and sequence and fun and, like, love and hate and these really extreme like everything and so mm-hmm. each of them gets to have that moment with and through the song so i think that's really cool the storyline itself is pretty simple but i think that's needed in order to make all the songs fit the plot points obviously there are still interludes where they're there for the, the theatrics kind of like not really to move the story along but the setting being in greece and having a wedding on the horizon makes for some really beautiful beachy scenes and bright, colorful dances. It's pretty modern, despite our 70s throwbacks, but I think that the relevancy just plays homage to how timeless ABBA's music is. Um, And for me, it's really the music that makes the movie. So I wouldn't call it 
cinematic gold, um, but it's still impossible not to sing along. And I think that's what makes it one of my favorites and kind of unique too, because in my mind, when I think of a musical, I think of like original songwriting most of the time and with, um, with Wicked or with Cats or with Rent. Like these are all films and musicals, some books that have these original scores provided for them. But with ABBA, it's a music group first. Mm -hmm. And then they said, let's make a movie that works with all of this music. So it's more like across the universe where they took all the Beatles music. Yeah. You know, so I feel like you have like a very different kind of musical Mm. when you're trying to incorporate songs that are like pre-existing your story. Right. Um, But I thought it was really cute. I was reading a little bit about Mamma Mia. And Pierce Brosnan, Brosnan had no idea what the project was about when he signed the contract. Hmm. The producers told him it was going to be filmed in Greece and Meryl Streep was starring. And Brosnan said he would have signed on for anything involving Streep, describing her as that gorgeous blonde I fancied terribly in drama school. Ah, it was so <laughs> cute. I would have signed on to. Um, and the way, one of my favorite performances is um, one of the last songs where Meryl Streep is singing sort of at Pierce Brosnan And it's just so powerful. And seeing that interaction between the two of them, like, he doesn't say a word, but you get so much energy off of the both of them. It was Mm -hmm. just a beautiful performance. Um, But what did you think, Taylor? I loved it. I had never seen Mamma Mia before. I, I knew the premise, obviously, and I knew it was a musical that featured ABBA songs, but... I just had just not seen it before, so I'm really glad that I was able to watch it. Uh, I love Meryl Streep. I thought it was a great role for her because I feel like you see her a lot in biopics and dramas and, like, terribly serious roles, um, you know, Oscar bait roles, and obviously she's super talented and um, successful, you know, in those roles. But to see her in this... Yeah, she, you could just tell she had so much fun. Like, so much fun, like, playing that role. And um, it's funny that you called out the song, um, The Winner Takes It All. So that song that she sings to uh, Pierce Brosnan's character. Mm-hmm. I read that she went to Stockholm, Sweden, to uh, record that with um, the composer for the movie, which was a former member of ABBA. Mm-hmm. And she did that song in one take, and that he he called her a miracle. <gasps> oh my gosh! Yeah, and uh, that was the composer for the movie, and he he was a former member of ABBA, and he was just like, yes, she did it in one take, and like she called her a miracle. <laughs> That's incredible. I thought so. <laughs> so I I knew that she had gone to Stockholm to record it, mm-hmm. and I thought that was really interesting, and that the composer had been a member of ABBA, which I thought was really cool, too, because it makes it feel like the film's a little more, um, I don't know, valid in a way. I always feel, I feel a little weird when it's like, okay, you took someone else's music um, that they worked so very hard on, and then you just put it into a film, like, to make money off of it, right? And they would have had to have had, like, the rights to it, but to have input and, like, 
to be collaborative with mm-hmm. at least a few of the original members of ABBA. Yeah. Because um, I think, so I read that they tried to get ABBA to write an original song for the film to um, to be eligible for Best Original Song in the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. And ABBA refused. They were like, no. <laughs> so even though it's a musical and it was, you know, really successful... It didn't qualify for Best Original Song because none of the music in the film were written originally for the film. Was original. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting, too, that you bring up their, like, unwillingness to write for this because part of why I picked Mamma Mia was Abbott came out with their first album in 40 years this year. Um, So they just came out with Voyage, I think it's called. Yeah, Abba Voyage. And have you heard it? I have not. You have not? Okay. No. Okay. But they I, did that in 2021 or 2022? Oh, gosh. I oh, know. Maybe I've... it was 2021. I forget that we're in January. <laughs> I feel like it was in December, though, because okay. as soon as it came out, I listened to it. I'll double check that really quickly. Because um, I was really curious, and it has a different sound. Mm-hmm. It, it really does. But, again... It's been 40 years, so clearly it's going to have a different sound. Right. Um, And frankly, the first time listening through, I was a little disappointed, maybe. I think I had hyped myself up a little bit too much for for hearing something that was more similar similar to the ABBA that I grew up with. But listening again, I actually really quite enjoyed the album. I thought it was really good. Um, But I find it interesting that they didn't want to write an original piece for Mamma Mia!, but then, let's see. Well, that was ten over 10 years, years ago. I yeah, mean, 10 and some years later, they have came an album. Out in like 2008. Mm-hmm, it's so, like, yeah, I mean, t- time, time can change. But, yeah. I quite liked this movie. Just enjoyable. Entertaining. Was, yeah, super entertaining, super fun. Um, I liked the three men because um, they were so eclectic and obviously that was kind of the point because it's like okay here are three potential fathers and she she claim amanda seyfried's character sophie claims that she'll know when when she meets him mm-hmm. like she'll just magically know and of course she doesn't no. and they're also different they're from different parts of the world um, you know, they have different lives, different lifestyles, different uh, professions. Mm-hmm. And, but then when you look at Stella Skarsgård, Colin Firth, and Pierce Brosnan, like, I don't know, they just, it was such an interesting, like, dynamic between the three of them because they all arrive at the same time. Like, they come over on boat together and, like, they kind of, and, like, they don't know each other. They, they claim to be strangers. Mm-hmm. And... And then, obviously, eventually they find out why they've been brought to the island. Right. And that, you know, they all know Donna. But they all think they've just been invited to this wedding. Right. By Donna. Like, they think Donna is in on the whole thing, that she invited them, sort of. Not like, you know, but once they get there and the daughter, once Sophie is like, oh actually she has no idea it's a surprise for her mm-hmm. they're kind of like oh okay and then Pierce Brosnan's character is like oh I have other things to do you know and she's like well clearly 
you traveled all this way just to show up for a wedding. Like, yeah. do you? Yeah. Or, like, why are like you really here? for here? a reason. Or you chose to come here for a reason. And all these men are just still kind of infatuated with Donna. Yeah. And she's a very, like, charismatic woman. And mm-hmm. But I just loved how, you know, they were like, yeah, I just, had, you know, it's completely out of the blue. I haven't heard from her in 20 years. And the other one's just like, oh, yeah, me too. And they're like, oh, what a strange coincidence like that all three of us are <laughs> yeah. traveling here because they end up on the same boat to get to the island too because they've two of them have missed the ferry and mm-hmm. or whatever it is that takes them across so yeah their their meet cute is interesting that yeah. travel to the island mm-hmm. especially um and there are lots of great i love the the cast the the local community or the I guess maybe the inn workers oh, um, yeah. there in Greece like they ha- are just so much fun they have these really fun um, quirky background moments and I think it's Julie Walters who is like well that's very Greek <laughs> just well funny. well yeah and I love how they they um, kind of use the setting to their advantage because it's set in Greece. And those background characters, so the people who are either uh, natives or not natives. Well, yeah, they, like, live on the island or they work at the inn. Mm-hmm. They play these, like, background roles, and it's and it's in the traditional Greek chorus, mm-hmm. um, I guess, mode of right. storytelling for theater that is, you know, from, that originated in ancient Greece. And mm-hmm. so, and I loved how they utilize that you know greek chorus in in a modern way and Mm -hmm. yeah julie walter's character does call it out because she's like oh how very greek Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then that just sort of continues and i love the dancing queen song because it's like all the women congregate on like this pier and they're all like dancing and this whole island this tiny place yeah yeah they did a really great job with the with the large because they, they had a huge cast. I mean, they still... It was less of a production than the producers is. Because it they didn't try to set it like this would be played out on a stage. Mm. Like, at no point did, at least to me, the film feel like, oh, I can see this on stage right now. Yeah. It was very much made for TV. Yeah. Um, or made to be on film. But they still had a lot of fun with hordes of people doing these really fun dance numbers and there's a a point when it's all the boys that are gonna go on the bachelor party i guess the stag stag. yeah (laughs) and so they're all in their flippers on the dock dancing and it's just really goofy and fun yeah Yeah. um i loved oh shoot what's her name uh, Christine Bransky. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's she's great. I love her so much. And in that role, or just like bo- both of her friends are there for her through the whole thing. And it's just, it's just so great. And I also love, so um, I don't know if you're on TikTok at all, but uh, there was, uh, I guess, one where it took audio and I didn't know it was from Mamma Mia. I just, I had no idea where the audio came from. But it's the one where he's like, he's like, how old are you? I'm 20. And he's like, ah. Have you seen those TikToks at all? No. Well, they're 
circulating. They're circulating. Okay. And, um, and I've seen the TikToks, and they're funny. But And then I watched the movie, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's where the audio is from. Because it's still in Skarsgård asking Amanda Seyfried, like, oh, how old are you? And when she says she's 20... His reaction is of like, oh, oh my god, like the time, like the timing is clicking in his brain, and he's just like, oh, I could be, be your father, dad. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought that was funny because I've heard the TikTok, just I didn't know it was from Mamma Mia. Very out of context. No, I'll have to check that out because yeah. I have not seen that at all. I'm also like never on TikTok to be honest. I have like three people that I get notifications for different videos that they post, and it's know. all like teachers. Making fun of their students, so. Oh, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. Well, <laughs> ABBA has had quite the moment on TikTok. Mm. A lot of ABBA songs have made their way, or circulated through TikTok, which I think is a lot of fun. They're so famous. Like, oh, yeah. I don't know. Even if you're not a fan of ABBA, you still know ABBA. You mm-hmm. still know their songs. Like, when Dancing Queen comes on. You know it's ABBA, and yeah. you're going to be able to sing along. Oh, absolutely. Which makes them, I think, the perfect soundtrack for this, the perf- perfect band for there to be a musical set around. Um, but also the messaging. I think I. it's really interesting seeing how the, the movie plays off of the messaging in the songs. Right. Because... When I listen to music, and I think most of us do this too, we have our own interpretation of what it's saying. Even though it's fairly cut and dry sometimes, it's still like you envision a different narrative, right? right? And then with this, they're providing you the narrative. So it's just interesting sort of, you know, re-experiencing that music for the first time with a new narrative. No, I, absolutely. I had that moment happen for me a lot because I've heard Abba's music a lot. But yeah, I have my own context for it. But then when you're watching it with the action unfolding on screen, it takes the the context or like the meaning or the interpretation for that song in a totally different way. Yeah. And you're, yeah, you're experiencing it for like the first time. Yeah. And yeah, all the, all the actors did such a good job. Um it was interesting. I, I don't think Colin Firth and Pierce Brosnan are maybe the most musically uh, gifted. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. But, uh, but, you know, they did it. And apparently Colin Firth said that this is, like, his favorite movie. Really? Yeah. Oh. I mean, it seems like it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And he was a lead role, but he was one of many. Right. So... You know, kind of takes the pressure off. I'm sure you get to have kind of a good time with it. And he gets to play this, like, has-been bad boy right? turned fairly mellow, like, accountant. Like, he works in an office or something. Yeah. So it's it's pretty cute. I, I think it's really endearing. I love his character. I also, Colin Firth is one of my all-time favorites. So it's hard not to be infatuated with everything he does. That's um, true. Was there anything you didn't like? Um. Hmm. No, I think everything was was pretty good. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the songs you you know, 
it just felt like they were thrown in. Like they didn't, like you were saying, they didn't necessarily progress the story at all. Mm-hmm. Like um, there's a whole part where uh, Christine Brancy's character is singing to this guy who's like fawning over her and, you know, kind of like a I'm too old for you, you're just a kid type song. And, you know, that kind of took me out of the story a little bit. But, you know, they're just throwing in ABBA songs for fun at you know for some parts but then some songs actually do like progress the story or like mm-hmm. really like fall into the plot but yeah overall i really liked it good yeah. um dominic cooper i thought was really good he plays the fiance and mm-hmm. um yeah yeah this makes me want to see it on stage to be perfectly honest like watching the movie i'm like oh yeah this looks like it'd be a blast to watch like oh absolutely yeah yeah i agree i agree i think this would be a fun one to see live i yeah the the biggest complaint i had with it re-watching again because because it had been a while and again i don't watch musicals that often um i didn't love some of those moments where yeah they were just they had a song in there to have a song in there, you know? But right. also, it's that kind of movie. Mm-hmm. It's it's there to have fun with it. Yeah. And there's a there's a scene where Sophie and her fiancé are on the beach, and they're doing this sort of sexy beach dance song yeah. at each other, and I'm kind of like, oh, okay, whatever. You know? Which I, felt, I felt like that was kind of needed, because you didn't really know, you didn't get the sense that, of, like, who he, like, it's her story, yeah. and he's kind of a side character, and it actually showed me, like, oh, okay, this is a young couple, and... I see that. You know, they're, yeah. they're getting ready to be newlyweds, and right. so I felt like I kind of, like, that did serve a purpose, to at, at least introduce us to him more. I guess that's fair. Yeah, their relationship was kind of secondary throughout. But but yeah. at the same time, it's like, well, they're getting married. And not to be like a buzzkill or anything, but at that point, it's what like, why are we all that worried about it? <laughs> it's like, I mean, I guess they figured it out. Good for them. Like, yeah. choices are made. But, um, yeah, I, I felt like it was a little, like, whatever. Yeah. But... Because they were also trying to focus on the relationships between the three men and, and her mom, too. Right. So, and and there's that par- parallel throughout the entire film of Sophie and her mom and Sophie's relationships with friends and soon-to-be husband and Donna's relationships with these three men and her friends, too. So there, there are similarities throughout. And also the mother-daughter relationship as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they, they kind of run along beside yeah. each other. Well, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. Cool. I'm glad it was something that you hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. I was a little surprised, honestly. I figured you had seen it. Yeah, I don't know why I've never seen it. I had seen it. I, I know I'd seen, like, parts of it, like, at, at my in-law's house. But it was on mute, playing in the background. And, like, we were... <laughs> that defeats the whole purpose of a musical. <laughs> I know. I don't know. It's, like, the type of household that just always has the TV on. Mm. And they have a really open concept house. Or, like, an open house. Right. And um, we were in the kitchen. And that was playing in the living room. But I could see it. 
and I was drawn to it. Like, I found myself, like, watching it, even though that it was on mute. Mm-hmm. I would, and I, because you could obviously see, like, the dancing and everything. And I was like, oh, this looks good. <laughs> but I, like, had to focus on other things because we were doing something different. But it was just playing in the background. So That's really I'm fun. glad I had the opportunity to actually watch it fully with, with the, with with the, the volume on. on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, As usual, uh, please follow us on social media. We are on Instagram. We post uh, upcoming episodes. We post our cocktail recipes. And, yeah, if you could like and follow us. And also be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you could, leave leave us a review. It really helps us be relevant and searchable on all the different platforms. So any positive review you can give us is much appreciated. Yeah. And as always, too, go ahead and drop us a comment or send us a message about films or genres that you want us to check out. We've had some great suggestions from people, um, some great drink suggestions. I had a listener, Uncle Sean. Um, who (laughs) provided me with a Regency-era cocktail book uh, after listening to our episode, our first episode on Regency-era film. So very cool. Really excited to try some of those recipes out. So if you've got suggestions or thoughts, always feel free to pass that along. We're always excited and um, looking for new things to try. So thanks so much, and we will catch you next time. Bye.